Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Even if you're an actor and you want to be an actor, you have to create your own content. That'll help you understand what people are looking for. It'll help you understand the process. You have to create your own content. You can't just sit around waiting for a script to come along and you act in it. you got to write the script. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So glad to have you here. For those of you who've been here before, welcome back. Appreciate you subscribing and listening and passing it on. And for those of you first-timers, welcome. I hope you enjoyed this as much as we do. And got a great show today with Jimmy and John DeResta, who are incredibly talented, unique, funny introspective and inspirational and before i get started i want to let you know if you need to reach me you can do so at barry cats at twitter or instagram or at barrycats.com and hopefully i will get back to you as soon as i possibly can the support is incredible and i'm glad you enjoyed the show as much as i do and i want to keep bringing you guests that hopefully set an example and show you a little bit about the different ways of how people go through the ups and downs in this business and come out on the other side. That's a great segue to Jimmy and John because I've known John the rest of my whole career and he's a guy who has had an amazing journey. A guy who has had one of the shittiest jobs ever in the New York City Transit Police in Coney Island to having a dream of doing some comedy because people told him he was funny and writing his own one-person show and putting the show up on its feet and getting it going and signing the largest financial deal for a stand-up comic in history for his own television show, Duresta, which was on the UPN network, but also a guy who's had incredible downs where he didn't know the business side and was signing contracts that 
he didn't know what the wording was and just trusting people, which created incredible difficulties in his career and with the show and people he was working with, but then experienced incredible highs again, working with people like Sandra Bullock and Robert De Niro and Matthew McConaughey and great, great feature films. And Jim has been a guy who was on the other side, was an artist, was a guy who was creating, using the camera to create different things around his artistic creations. And many times worked with his brother on really interesting projects, but also saw those things get canceled and then back to the old job again where he was, then coming back with another show, having that get canceled going back to the regular job again and it keeps going back and forth and now he's working on an NBC show with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman so now it's up again and that's one of the things that you take from these two guys is that on one side you see a guy like John who's more of a blue collar grind it out kind of guy a guy who's always on funny all the time, always making the joke, but's had a hard life. And Jimmy, on the other hand, seems more like a white collar kind of worker. And even though he works in the artistic field and he gets his hands dirty, he's got that way about him that feels more upscale. And yet they seem opposite, but they mix together so well and they've done so many great television shows together and they always seem to have each other's backs. But in the end, they're a real example of the incredible ups and downs of this entertainment business. And how do you handle it? Not just when the good times happen. What do you do to make things continue. When you talk to them, you get a sense of what not to do and the mistakes not to make. And I think this podcast is going to be very instrumental for a lot of people out there to see the examples of the good and the bad, the examples of what you can run into that are helpful and the things you can run into that will take you down. If you can figure out a way to handle things the way these guys do with grace and dignity, preparation, and always thinking about the next gig even before it happens. And even though they laugh at the last line I'm about to say, because many times John is more self-deprecating than not, I can guarantee you if you follow that path, you'll have the kind of careers that Jimmy and John DeResta have. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air!
Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Now to you, Jimmy. So what's your inspiration to be a designer? And <laughs> when do you know that you can do it? And what's your first gig in that world? Well, I guess uh, growing up, we grew up in the workshop. And uh, my dad always had a workshop there. So we were always making things. I just grew up making things. We all did. All of us, my siblings, everybody, we all grew up making stuff. And I just remained the most attracted to it. It was the most natural for me. My dad would call me the creation kid because I was always making stuff and leaving it around the house and he'd trip on it and get annoyed. But he, so sarcastically, he would call me the creation kid, but I basically became the creation kid. I was always making stuff. What's the first thing you made where the people in the house were like, holy shit, Jim, I remember this is unbelievable. The seahorse was the first thing I made. I was about eight or nine years old. But it was like three-dimensional. It was carved and burnt with a torch. I like, made you know that, what the seahorse looks it's like? Still, it's, it's in my apartment right now. I yeah, but it, it in 1975. It, somehow, some way, it had a... It, it, like, if I would have just cut it out of a flat piece of wood, it would just look like a sperm with a hook. <laughs> he, he made it three-dimensional. He had, it had a snout. Yeah, it looked just like a real... You know, I mean, it looks like... You know, I, I saw the picture, drew it, and cut it out and carved it. And that was really like, I'm like, oh, I was kind of like born to do that. It really wasn't, it wasn't a decision. It just was all. Can I, can I interject? Yeah. Every Halloween in the 70s and mm-hmm. early 80s, there was a line down my mother's <laughs> driveway with people that wanted the hatchet, the sword, the I fake was hair, making, I was always the making necklace, weapons. you know, the heavy metal guy wanted the wooden cross. And Jimmy literally, the, the, how, how's, that, how's this for on the job training? Like you walked in and let's say you had this outfit on and you wanted to be a Jewish Mad Max and you needed a shield, (laughs) (laughs) right? To ward off the Goyim. For our audience, Goyim, (laughs) non-Jew. Jimmy would, within a a minute and a half, out of paneling. Remember the cheap paneling was in everyone's basement, so it was just an eighth of an inch. He would like within a minute you had your shield. You know what I, I mean? Was, I was really good at And it was made, fast. watch this, it was like a made-for-TV prop because it was only going to be used that night, you know, for Halloween, you know what I mean, to go egging and breaking windows or whatever, the, you know, we did. <laughs> and he would, uh, you know, we grew, we hung on with a group of guys that would freeze the eggs. Now you get hit with a rock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so how do you get the gig at that toy place? In high school, I went for architecture. So I was always an artist. And in high school, I went for architecture. My dad said, hey, maybe you should be, uh, maybe you should consider a career as an architect because you're interested in building and you're a designer and, you know, you're a natural designer. So for three years of high school, I went for math and architecture. And in fact, when the Trump Tower first opened, my teacher in 1983 or four brought us to Trump Tower. We all, like, we surveyed the lobby of Trump Tower. He talked about how the building was designed and everything. So I was interested in architecture, but then in my senior year, I had to cheat on my Regents Math to graduate. So I was like, that's it, I'm not doing architecture because I started then getting involved with, like, I started becoming interested in uh, Da Vinci and Warhol and these artists and Michelangelo. I'm like, if any of these guys, none of these guys are architects, they could design whatever they want and just hire a mathematician to do the complicated stuff. So then I started developing the thoughts of like, I could be an artist. If I just develop a career as an artist, I could design anything. I could design a house, I could design a chair, I could design a table. And so then I ended up going to art school and you had to declare a major, so I declared graphic design, although I didn't really have like a heartfelt interest in graphic design. But while I was in school, I developed my own major as a three-dimensional illustrator, which basically means you could design anything. You're making images, you're making three-dimensional images to be photographed. And so that's how I 
I, I went through my four years of college art school and I graduated in 1990. But just before I graduated, one of my teachers was in the toy business and he saw my ability to, to invent and think on my feet and said, you should consider a career in the toy business. Hang with me and I'll get you gigs. And he started getting me jobs with other inventors developing their idea. So an inventor would come to me and say, uh, if, imagine if a pair of glasses were on your face and it would just bob up and down. The jerk. Yeah, and he basically would say, you run with that. I'll give you $15 an hour to come up with that, you know, to develop that idea. So I'd come up with five mechanisms that would make the glasses bob up and down on your nose. And that's really, and then at the same time, me and my brother Joey, who I pulled into this business with me at the time, we started developing our own ideas. We always knew, like for instance, Fido Dido was this, was this uh, character that was being licensed all around in the late 80s. Joey always said, we should come up with our own version of like a Fido Dido, something that you could license to garment companies, something that would be a licensed product. <clears throat> and so we started developing a few different concepts. None of them ever took off, but at the same time, we were basically developing our education in licensing coming up with ideas, inventing, patenting, and we came up with lots of ideas. Our hero, they came up with a uh, an anti-hero, t-shirts, cartoon, it was called yeah, Our Hero, yeah, and he, and he could have caught on just as well as, as Any, Garfield or anyone, and it just didn't. It just didn't, but it gave us an education in that business, a comic book business. And it, fast forward to 1995, we developed a product called Gurgling Guts. It's like a squishy eyeball inside of a clear skin, and a lot of people recognize that. That was our big item. We made a lot of money with that at the time. And so, John, you're thinking you're doing this comedy stuff. When do you come up with the idea that you want to do a one-person show? Which at the time, there were no comedians doing one-person shows. Even Leary, No Cure for Cancer, was after your show. No, his might have been before, but his was probably more just straight stand-up. I had a few characters in mind, a few yeah. lighting changes. But, I mean, you had Leguizamo, Leary did one. Defending the Caveman. Was Defending the, the Caveman, caveman and, and also the girl from uh, Saturday Night Live. It's Pat. So, a few times we went up to the meet these toy guys, and I would crack them up. The, the guys that had a little bit more money, but through Jimmy and Joey. So when I did the Bringer show, it's at 72 with um, Douglas's brother, August 3rd, 1993. Um, so set 72, I killed the one with the phone up the, the rectum. And, but then I said, I think I'm a transit cop. You ride, we hide. What's it like to be a transit cop? Go out in your garage on the hottest day of August, piss in the corner and stand in the puddle for nine hours, <laughs> you know, for $310 a week and $10 co-payments. So it wind up. The guys came just to see my set, Anthony and John Gentile, guys from the toy business that had a little money, and they had just invented Sky Dancer. You pulled it, and it flew. So they had a little extra money. And they, they wanted to get in the entertainment business. And they wanted to get in the entertainment business. These and were the, the people that Jimmy was working with. That Jimmy was working with. And they, they saw set 72. They didn't even stay to see Stephen Douglas or Tracy Esposito uh, or Janice again. Massetti. <laughs> no, they didn't stay. And Joey, our brother Joey, was the one who was the sales pitch for that. It Joey was, was the sales pitch to at least come see John. Just at least come see John. It was that Joey's vision. night, I was pretty sure the show wasn't even over. Jimmy came, Joey came in the green room and said, this is Gentilly's phone number. Call him tomorrow. He has an idea. I had no long distance. I was so broke. I lived in 50 miles north of Manhattan. All I had was a local and 911. I went to Grand Union with a handful of quarters. <laughs> and called Gentilly and he said, John, what we saw last night is a one-man show. It's a theme. It's a blue-collar guy. 
you, you get the job thinking it's the greatest, you have benefits, and then you work nights and weekends, you lose your hair. Then you get divorced at 30 and live in your old bedroom with your twisted sister posters. You know, all the shit he took out of my act. And he said, if we send you to acting school and we help you develop this, would you like to do a one-man show? And I said, yes. And then we moved on from there for four years. Every weekend I would run and do a gig on the weekend at Rascals. You developed the show. I developed the show years. for four years with an acting coach. With and but ninety percent of the work was in dingy, dirty nightclubs, pips, Otto, you know, Knights of Columbus's. You say Otto, Otto, Otto and George. George. You know what I mean? It, it was those gigs that I would come back and to to the director or the co-writer and say, you know, for like the fifth night in a row, this joke has worked great. You know what I mean? And for 10, now I developed this one a little bit. It was on the job training. Okay, so when do you decide you're ready to do the show and put the whole show up on it? Again, with the producers that were all watching my tapes. You say the producers. The guys right? that, that, that so, I called from Grand Union. They so were the producers of my one-man show. They became live performance, one-person show producers? Have yes. Have ever done that before? Just for him. They never did. No, that. never did. But they were graphic artists, and we they came up with a really catchy poster. They we came up with a catchy title. I wanted to call it Let You me, Ride, We Hide. I just want to get, get John Anthony Gentili and their other partner, Marty Abrams, they developed a lot of entertainment properties. This is really the, kind of the first live action Got entertainment it. So property. So what was the name you wanted? You ride. I wanted to call it You Ride, We Hide. What did they want to call it? Beat a Subway Cops Comedy, and that's what it was called. And so you sign a deal with them. Whoa, back up. We work it out for four years. It's never mentioned who owns what. Okay, so you're working it out for four years. Who's writing the show? Um, I, I thought I wrote it. The night it opened, it said written by Donna Daly and John DeResta. The night it opened in the window. Who's Donna Daly? She was the director, the wife of one of the producers. They assigned her to direct it. And the first night before we even opened, I said to her, you know, this looks a little... She said, I, I, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know why it says that. I never... You wrote it. It's your show. This is before I had to perform the first night. November 6th. Were you upset about it? I wasn't upset, but I had read enough that, you know. So it was November 6th, what? 1996. Okay. Where was the opening show? 42nd Street, the Kaufman Theater, 42nd and 10th, 99-seat theater. Then they booked it for six weeks. They booked it for six weeks. How much did that cost? Um, they said their initial investment was $65,000 so between ads between TV uh, and radio commercials. That seems inexpensive for six weeks, to be honest with you. And how much was a fee per seat? Uh, it was 20 bucks a ticket. It was more to turn into a sitcom. It was more of a vehicle to turn into a sitcom than it was a money maker. Got it. And how much money had they invested in you in the acting for the four years? Uh, but not as much as you would think. You know what I mean? I went to like a couple of one-man show, eight-week courses, you know, maybe uh, five grand, seven grand. Got it. So they're in it for 70000 and you do six weeks. Now, how many shows a week was it? Eight. I took a leave yeah. of absence from the NYPD for uh, uh, four weeks. How could there be... How did you get audiences in the theater? Well, well again, they, they put ads in the Daily News and the Post, and then... That's some write-ups, too. They got some write-ups real quick. Within, like, a week, the New York Times compared me to Jackie Gleason. I just want to back up. Yeah. These guys have a lot of connections. Yeah. So they knew that going into this, they could pull a lot of favors. Okay, so what happened? So your first night, obviously, is sold out with family and friends. How does the show go? Uh, it goes good. It goes from, from the, like, the... <clears throat> um, 
it goes good because some of it is stand-up. Some of it is me relating to the audience and this happened and then the lights go down and there's a character. And there was a few props and Jimmy DeResta at the very end, I kept saying all I wanted was a, a mic, a partner because transit cops have no partner. All I wanted was Mike, 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 Mike. And the very last scene, I start to, it looks like I'm losing my mind. I'm in the subway of New York. It's all dirty. There's garbage everywhere. And I start going, Mike, Mike, like I'm yelling out like, oh fuck, this guy's lost his mind. And I step and I hit a trigger that Jimmy set up with a spring and pff, all the newspaper flutters. And I pick up a huge rubber rat <laughs> with, a, with a thick tail that's so thick it looked real. The way it slinked, it was heavy. And I just start nuzzling the rat and the fucking place goes nuts and the lights go down. They think it's a fucking real rat. And that's it. I found my fucking partner. A rat. The lights come up. Do they stand? You got a stand? I don't ovation. remember if I got a standing ovation, but I remember it worked. You were there that night. I don't know if he was. I Fran was there. late. They had a hold. Fran came from upstate New York. I might not have York, been there the first night. And Fran was late. Okay. November 6th. And it was her birthday. Okay. Right. Um, I just knew that it worked well. By like the second or third show, Donna Daly's best friend, the director, came up to the dressing room afterwards and goes, when you picked up, when you were yelling out for your friend... I wanted to run out of the theater. It was so real. I felt so bad for you that you were so lonely. <laughs> and then you picked up that fucking rubber rat and it blew my mind. So I knew that I was doing something right. You know, it wasn't just dick jokes. And there were crowds every night? No, no. There was, there was, um, uh, this is, a, he probably doesn't even know this. You talk about filling empty seats. Our cousin Jimmy Bennett was in the elevator union. He was the head of like all of Manhattan. And if we were low on seats, he would send over 12 or 15 elevator fixer guys, as long as we gave them free beer. So out of the 48 shows, how many sold out? I would say about half. Like the weekends would be sold out. Well, that's pretty good. But watch this. Then, they, then when we got sitcom interest, they extended the show. So it went from 48 initials. Now I had to go back to work as a cop and still do the one-man show eight times a week. In other words, they extended it because it said Abrams Gentile presents. They were getting a lot of press out of this show. What and we you, still hadn't signed a sitcom deal. What were you getting paid for show? That's a good, uh, I was getting some weekly salary of like 1500 a week. No, maybe 750 Because I remember Marty Abrams saying, well, how much do you make a week as a cop? And I said 500 All right. So you had talked to the director about our name being on the thing for writing it. Right. Did you approach the producers and say, could you please take her name off, which she didn't write anything? Uh, it came up very quickly, like I, by like day two or day three when I came in, it just said written by John DeResta. Okay, so they changed it. They, yeah, but the contract was what two con fingers in the record. contract? The very first night it opened that Fran was running late, a contract had never been brought up. They sent me to school, they invested all this money, and the night it was open, November 6th, I went to this tiny dressing room as big as this table, and there was a contract as thick as that phone, like a 15, 20, 30 page contract. And did you say like, listen, I'll look at this over the week and I'll get back to you? Of course not. Why not? Because <laughs> I'm a white trash piece of shit and I trust the people. You signed the contract without reading. Well, I, you, I was a little slicker than that. I showed it to our brother, Joey, whose friend knows a guy who cuts the lawn for the Stone Temple Pilots lawyer. This is a true story. <laughs> Who bargained with them? Joey bargained with them. My brother Joey. In the dressing room? No, like three days later. So you didn't sign it? I didn't it. sign it. I didn't sign it. But this is what Joey did. 
He got them from owning 90% of my life story. He got them down to 85. He's the asshole now. <laughs> I own 15% of that show. You signed a deal. And then I signed that. And it was a horrible deal. It blew up in my face. To this day, it's shown in entertainment law classes on how someone can get fucked. Not only did I sign it, then we got sitcom interest. Ruth Ann Segunda came on, agent, big agent. At Abrams Artist. Abrams Artist. She came on. Um, now, like, like literally on the guest list, it would say Miramax. On the guest list, it would say Disney. On the guest list, it would say, you know, people were interested. And then we started to fly to L.A. to meet with agents, to meet with... Who's we? Um, me and Anthony Gentili and Donna, the director. And it was a very muddy, are they producers? Are they my managers? Do they own the story? Who are... And, and then here's what happened. Jimmy probably doesn't even know this. We'd be flying to go meet. Literally, I'd get off as a cop. The one-man show was off that night. It was a Monday. I'd fly to L.A., meet with two or three people, fly back and go back on duty as a cop. But in between... On the airplane, if you could just initial A, Anthony Gentili, just initial C, handing you piece handed of me paper. new shit on the contract, handwritten, and I'm fucking signing it. Every time I said, this doesn't feel right. The same thing with my Uncle Kenny in the tent when we went camping. <laughs> Why would you sign stuff? That I just, I was in a weird position. They were literally, I was flying first class, eating hot nuts with a hot towel. And they're sliding this between chairs. Did you hire an attorney to restructure the contract? It, 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 when someone from when when I was in his workshop and things were going great, this is how crazy entertainment is. And I've only been a comedian five or six years. Now keep in mind they're probably into this about a hundred thousand dollars. Right. Well, sixty-five at least, but then they extended it, and then they took bigger ads because again it said Abram Gentili Entertainment presents. Beat the Subway Cops comedy. But they still had to make at least their $100,000 back or something. Well, they were looking for that. That's, you know, they didn't get into it just to break even. That's what I was told. Um, <clears throat> oh, I was in Jimmy, uh, and now I had Ruth Ann Segunda, and I was at Jimmy's Bigger Shop. Remember when you had the Bigger Shop that was an auto thing with the front door would oh, open? Yeah, yeah, a turn I was standing street. right at the, the and, and 95 to 2000, we had the. Yeah, time. I was standing there, and there was no cell phones, and Jimmy's phone in the shop rang. Um, as John DeResta, I said, this is John DeResta. She said, John, this is Ruth Ann. Um, I just read your contract. Do you have a lawyer? That was the first sign that, you know, someone has seen this and I knew it's not good. And I said, well, we have a lawyer, me and the producers. And she said, you need your own lawyer and you need it immediately. Who did she recommend? Uh, African-American woman. And I don't remember her name. She Nina Shaw. Yeah. Nina Shaw became my entertainment lawyer for years. Oh, she I represented Chappelle. Yeah. Nina Shaw. She was ruthless and she well, couldn't do anything. The, here's what happened. It, it went, and now again, I got a the sitcom. Looks like it's going to happen. I'm friends with them. They put me in place. The guilt from this side, the guilt from that side. Then I went and met with them on my own, trying to smooth it out without a lawyer. And every, I mean, literally four different people. You're, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. We know you're funny. We know that you might get a sitcom, but you're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. What did she get the contract down to? I got a $600,000 deal. And I'm going to shorten this down to if you want to get out of this contract, and us not litigate the producers of the one-man show. Pay us back. Here's the bill for the one-man show. It's now 250000 And we'll 
we'll make call. sure it, it looks like a two hundred fifty thousand dollar bill. So they'll step away if you give them two fifty. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly fair deal. To and they got a, a credit on the sitcom. They got a ten thousand dollar fee on every episode, but they didn't have to show up. But don't they you, said we didn't did get you, into did this. You resent that? No, no, I don't resent. I wanted to. In hindsight, I, they wanted to. They wanted me to do other things for them and with them. They wanted me to be in movies with them. They, you know, in other words, I got, I got, I got pulled every yeah, which but I way. Think that's an incredibly fair deal. So they gave up their rights in any percentage of your sitcom. Just think about it. If they had. 85 oh i understand what you're saying right earned. yeah and ready for this watch this this is for your listeners at home that don't know anything about show business ruth ann said you need to settle and you need to settle immediately because nobody wants to get into bed with something that's being litigated especially a sitcom where there's 50 different people saying they own it in other words you just won't have a deal you know what I mean? Or they'll just write you a check to say, we almost gave you a deal, now go away. But the thing is, if you had been in the situation alone, without anybody, and somebody offered you yeah, whatever it is. $150,000. Yeah, it would have been a great deal. deal. You would have been thrilled. Right. I wasn't upset. I said yes. And then Mark Landsman, who became my business manager. Mark Landsman, also Chappelle's. Said to, he then said to me, what everyone was saying, 250 250 get him out of your life. He called me. He said, do you really want me to write a check for 250 grand of your money? To these two guys, you want me to do that? <laughs> and I was like, ah, everybody tell me I took oh, the well, wasn't he involved with everybody? What? No, he came in, like a lot of people jumped in afterwards. This is months, this is months and me running to work as a cop, being in the newspapers, all the cops hated me because I was now quasi famous and signed a big deal. You know what I mean? It was a very strange time in my life, it would, which everyone thinks should be the happiest it was, you know, it was, it was. It got severely complicated. It got very complicated yeah. very fast. But you fast. stayed friends with those guys. As well as I could. There was one out of the three that, 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 that I think to this day dislikes me highly. But they got 250 plus 10 an episode. And we made 17 episodes. So they got 170. Yeah. But the quote from so the got, one guy so was, we didn't get into this to make 400 grand. We got into this to make you famous and ride the wave with you. And now you're cutting us out. And the reason you, I'm cutting them out is because everyone in Hollywood's going, they're bad, they're evil, they're no good, they fucked you, they took advantage of you. You understand what I mean? And the people in Hollywood, the reps there, don't want these two hanging around me. Jimmy, let's, pre <laughs> <laughs> let's pretend that you... Break. Let's pretend you were the guy who was brokering the deal and you were going to make the fair deal. You work with these guys at Toy Store. You saw what they put into the show. Yeah. You saw all the time they spent with John. If you were going to do the deal, what would you have told John? Not knowing anything that happened, but you know that something has to be renegotiated. What's a fair deal in your mind? I guess uh, I... I they had a partner that was very got very malicious and very angry about the whole thing. Forget the anger. Yeah. What would you think would be a fair deal? Uh, I know 50-50. So you would have said to John, do a 50-50 deal, all the money Everything. that you make, just give them 50 That they bring in anything that they that they. But initiate. on the show. So yeah. in other words... So the six hundred thousand, you would have said, give them three hundred thousand, and then give them fifty percent of everything you make on the show uh, and your salary on anything that on anything that 
they initiate it. So Who's another, he, Colonel Parker? So another, <laughs> 50-50? So in other words, his salary, whatever he was making, 30000 25 grand or something. Yeah, so they would have made 12 and a half each thing. So they would have made, in your scenario, well over $600,000 for the 17 episodes. Well, I mean, just like, again, just because they brought him to the table. And I'm not saying, I wasn't even thinking of this at the time. So don't, John's looking at me like. No, no, I'm not looking at you anyway. Yeah. No, no, no. no I, I mean, it's, it's, it's strange. Here's a, let me cut in. Jimmy and Joey were still buddies with them when this turned into a legal fight. It was a cluster F. Yeah. So I. Well, I'm now s- you're editing yourself? <laughs> <laughs> it was a cluster F. <laughs> no, I just thought maybe that would have been a good way to clear it up. Because in the toy business, when it comes to intellectual property, me and Joey, our other brother, would always say, it's just, it's an even, it's an even split. If a third person comes in, we say, you know what, now it's 33% each. It started out as 100% mine. You became my partner. Now it's 50-50. Then it's 33-33-33. Because you never know where the real juicy spark of inspiration is going to come from. I might have initiated it, but you come to the party and you bring the thing that actually makes it a real thing. So it's the same situation. John is the on-camera talent, but these guys helped him climb the ladder to get to the presentation to be able to show it to the masses. Right, but let me cut in. The contract, there was so there was things in there that were illegal that I signed. The amount of time they had me for, the percentages. All the money went to their bank before it went to your bank. Oh, see, I don't even remember that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the way. And then, then they watched this. This is another reason. It's funny he brought that up. The, what, what I signed was the Disney. I didn't know this because I was busy. I was gorging on hot peanuts and hot towels first class. Thank you. <laughs> my check, my first check from Disney would have gone to AGE and they would have held it hostage. In other words, I forgot that. In other words, what I signed was you get the money first, which is not unusual. However, when you have 50 cents in the bank and it says in the newspaper, you're now worth half a million and you don't have access to that. You know what I mean? They it, would have held it. got it. weird because they were the managers, they were the agents, they were the creators, they were everything. They were the legal team. It's the, the first bank. time I ever heard uh, that this relationship is too incestuous. Other than with my Uncle Kenny in, in the tent. <laughs> and so you shoot the pilot. Well, I get sold from Disney to UPN, so which is gets... the transit police of TV networks. Well, Disney was the production company. and, and They the sold the idea to Paramount. Oh, they did? Because okay. Dean went to UPN Got it. to rebuild UPN. Got it. You were his first show, right? He took me with me, but I wasn't guaranteed to get on the air at UPN. It was just a pilot. But you did the pilot. Tell our audience the day you got the phone call. Where were you? That you uh, you want to know that. something? I don't, unless you know the story. I, I don't, don't know the story. No, I don't. I don't remember the day they ordered the pilot. I will tell you this. I took the, I was still a cop. I had the TV deal. They ordered a pilot and I was in Club Med. I took my wife and three little kids to Club Med. We finally got the first check for 50 grand. We went to Club Med somewhere south of Florida. I don't even know where. Sweatshirts, $50. <laughs> We're at Club Med, and they send me the pilot on a fax machine. You mean the script? For the, the script pi- for the pilot had to be faxed, and the chopper was broke. <laughs> so now I have a 49-foot script out of that thin, cheesy paper in the black ink in Jamaica that comes through through thick, too thick, and through all that... I could still decipher that this shit ain't funny. And I'm fucking 
This shit ain't funny. Who wrote it? Matt Goldman. The same gentleman that ruined my life. You didn't write it with him? Nope. Why would I? I got fucking boxed out. How can you get boxed out? You're the creator of the show. No, he stole that. When you went into the meetings with Matt Goldman, did he say, you and I are creating it No, it never came up. I just assumed I was. And Nina Shaw and Ruth Ann didn't... Uh, uh, To quote Ruth Ann, when 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 the pilot, it was never brought up until I popped the pilot into a VCR machine and it was like doo, 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 doo. he's a transit cop he he's funny and you know when I'm in the you know in the subway and as a credits roll they say created by Matt Goldman I hit pause I called Ruth Ann and said why does it say created by Matt Goldman that's how far it got before I brought it up because I'm not a confrontational person and Ruth Ann said you just got through a lawsuit with who owns the show do you really want me to dust that up I say, yeah, kind of. It's okay. From the very beginning, that should be. Oh, understood. Understood. That's what I'm saying. When you're taking showrunner meetings, you have to know, or your representative has to let them know, listen, before you take this meeting with John, I just want you to know that you will be writing this show together with him and creating it together. And if you're not in agreement with that, I wouldn't take the meeting. Right, 100%. But I, I, I learned that too late. Yeah. Not only did I learn that too so late. it's not Matt Goldman's fault. No, no, I understand. His that. representatives protected him. Okay. And it's not like Ruthann and Nina were protecting you. Ruthann was new as an agent then, just like you. She no, was I understand. Up, I, like and I don't you. mean to point fingers. And she's a great agent, and she's always been a tremendous agent, a tremendous person. But she's new. Nina Shaw wasn't thinking of the created by credit, probably because... She hadn't been in a situation where somebody had been screwed before on something. Right. And again, a few years later, when Justin McKinney and I sold a TV sitcom idea about being cops in New York to Les Moonves directly in his office on a Friday, when we met with people, showrunners, the first question we asked was, do you guys know that Justin and I, it's in our contract that we're going to be involved with the writing and the created by, we get that. And two guys we met, and I won't say their names, said, well, that's not the way we work. And I said, then I guess we should cancel the appetizers. You know what I mean? We don't even have to go on from here. And they just got up and... No, I mean, it was a a hand job hour from there on in, but they said, that's not the way we work. And we wind up picking Alan Kirschenbaum. The late Alan. The late Alan, rest his soul. That said, yes, no problem. And we wrote it in a Starbucks and at Big Bob's in Burbank over like the next six weeks every night. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a -a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey, everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water 
in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. One, two, three, five, six. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. <laughs> and you guys are going to tell me anything. It could be a word, a okay. sentence. I'm going to start with you. Go I'm ahead. going to go two at a time with you, and then I'm going to go back Whoa. to him for one. You're going to get top billing here. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Robert De Niro. Uh, Robert De Niro. I did the movie 15 Minutes with him. We worked together about five months and one of the greatest nights of my life was being invited back up to his hotel room in New York City with Ed Burns. And we got drunk, which should have been a half hour of drinks, turned into about four or five, six hours of complete college shots, asking De Niro about every movie he did, redoing his lines. And at the end, about two in the morning, his wife shoved me and Ed Burns out the hotel door. And... I was screaming, so did Hitler from the movie King of Comedy. That's all I kept screaming. And he was as nice as could be, and he's a regular New York guy. And I have nothing but good things to say about him. Sandra Bullock. Uh, put me in the movie Miss Congeniality without an audition and a big paycheck because they wanted a Jack Black-like comedy role, a uh, comedy actor that had a New York accent. She put me in the first one and the second one. Both without, obviously without an audition on the second one or the first one. And um, uh, she's responsible most likely for my Screen Actors Guild pension. I lost my NYPD pension. I left early and picked one up. And most likely Sandra Bullock is responsible for it. She's funny. She's talented. And I wish we had have, uh, fallen in love. <laughs> <laughs> All 
right, Jimmy, you're up. Amy Poehler. Oh, Amy Poehler. It's funny, Amy Poehler. I used to watch her on the UCB tapes that my ex-girlfriend got us. Upright and, Citizens Brigade. And I always thought she was hilarious. And then through a weird set of circumstances, I ended up having uh, basically an audition meeting with her through, uh, uh, what do you call it? Not like when it's like fancy Skype. Like I was invited up to NBC. She started developing the show called, at the time, The Handmade Project, which now is Making It, in which I'm here in California shooting season two of Making It. And uh, I was invited up to NBC. So I went up to NBC, kind of in the same floor or second or third floor where they shoot uh, Saturday Night Live. And I was met by uh, Nicole, one of the producers of the show. And Nicole brought me into me. She goes, you don't remember me, do you? I said, I, I don't remember you. And she said, when you and your brother John did Trash the Cash years ago, you, you came on the Carson Daly show and did a segment. And I was the segment producer for that show. So when this handmade project came up, I always thought of you to use you for this show. Relationships, everybody. Yeah. And so because we made an impression that day, she remembered she was, you know, a segment producer or something. But now here it is many years later. She thought of me to bring me into this Amy Polar project. And That's awesome. How much money do you give John from that? Yeah. <laughs> 33%. Okay, good. And uh, <laughs> Look at his face. I go to the name making it. Sometimes the jokes are too cutting. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. And so uh, the, how the show got titled Making It is a whole <laughs> episode too. But uh, anyway, so I, I had a great meeting with Amy and several of the show producers. We had a lot of laughs and she just really likes my New York attitude. She's great. And she's always on funny. That's the one thing about Amy's always going for the laugh and she's super nice. Now, what I would think for you, if I'm going into a meeting like that, I would hearken back to that corporate show you did for those people where you made that thing or that specific yeah. thing. I would think if I was going to a meeting with Amy Poehler, I would make some original well, thing. Well, I'll tell you what, this is, so I got him, Nick, when this show came up, Nick basically wrote me a note, he goes, do you want to be on the show? I was like, well, if there's a place for me, I don't want to be a judge and I don't Nick want to. Nick Offerman. Yeah, well, Nick, Nick and I are friendly through John and that's a whole nother conversation. But when Nick said, do you want to be on the show? I was like, you could put my name in the hat, but I don't want to be a judge and I don't want to be a contestant. So if there's a place for me, yes, I'll do it. And so then a few weeks later, I got the call, come up to NBC, have a meeting. I had no idea who I was meeting with. So I met with Nicole in the lobby. She brought, she goes, I'm bringing you up. And in the elevator, she basically said, you don't remember me from Carson Daly. You're the reason that, that time, that moment of time is the reason why you're here now. I said, oh, that's wonderful. You're going to meet with Amy Poehler and you're going to meet, but you're going to meet on a screen. They're in LA, you're here in New York. And so I went into a room, there's a big screen and on the screen there's Amy and like five or six other producers who were still working on the show. And we just had a meeting. They asked me about the maker movement, my involvement in the maker movement and, uh, you know, my, my YouTube channel and, and my fans and what I would want to see in a maker show. The show was still in early development. Had a lot of laughs and then I went away and it was very funny at the very end of it. They go, so do you have any questions for us? And I said, yeah, what exactly do you want from me? Because it wasn't like there was no discussion of me being a role on the show or anything. And she goes, well, we're going to talk about that and we'll get back to you. And then they ended up hiring me for season one of making it awesome. as the shop proctor. I basically make sure that the contestants don't get hurt on the machines and also uh, I help them engineer their projects because sometimes they're a little in 
over their head with some of their ideas. Awesome. John, you're up. Michael Caine. All right. Uh, Miss Congeniality 1, I had read Michael Caine, one or two of his books, and we had a similar background. He was a uh, Korean War vet and said he would never, ever again work for the man. Uh, you know, and I was a cop and I worked for the man. Um, so we, I actually said that to him. Hey, I'm a former cop. And, you know, he was a, a soldier and, you know, we both wanted to get out via acting. So uh, we made, we were pretty good friends. And um, two funny things in the movie, Miss Congeniality, when she's supposed to lose weight over those three days, he reaches over her shoulder and takes a hero out of her hand, a big hoagie and goes, thank you. Which is my callback, which he bit from me on, you know, from hanging around with me, which is kind of a funny little thing. And then Jimmy doesn't, this is the dumbest little anecdote. I was on line to fly back to LA at the Austin airport in coach. And there was a guy in first class. He was eye fucking me. He was like, look at you, you're in coach. You know, yeah, I just got that gist that I was in coach and he's giving me dirty luck. I'm in first class. So he gets on the plane and little that I know, Michael Caine was on the plane. And he's sitting next to Michael Caine. And as I walk through, the guy looks at me like, that's right, bitch, I'm in first class, you're walking back to coach. And with that, Michael Caine looks up and goes, hey, how you doing, John? I said, hey, what's up, Mike? And we just walk past each other. And the look on this guy's face was hysterical <laughs> that this, you know, fat mutt from Long Island was friends with Michael Caine. Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Miss uh, Had to Lose a Guy. I met him on the set of Miss Congeniality, and he was friendly as could be. And then he was uh, my brother-in-law in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And in that movie, I was cop number one until my manager at the time, you might know him, Barry Katz, <laughs> said, make sure you get a character's name. You don't want to be cop number one. It was very, great advice. Very important. Anybody listening, whatever role you get, if it says waitress, make sure that you get a name for the character or I wouldn't even consider doing the character. I know what you're saying. People might say, well, take it or leave it. But there's no reason why they can't change a name. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't cost anything. Always get a name. And watch this. When I do my stand-up and I say, you guys might have recognized me from How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, the cop in the card game, and people in the audience will yell out, Joey! <laughs> And one time I said, my name's John. And they said, no, your character, I didn't even know the character's name, it's in the credits. And that's directly from you. Uh, he's he's the most charming uh, person I ever met. They, sell, they say Bill Clinton has it, and Matthew McConaughey has it. You know, I've met Stern, I've met De Niro, and they're all just a bunch of regular guys like us. Matthew McConaughey uh, has some kind of uh, you know charm that just, um, it's, it's there. And he's got some ass, I'll tell you, it sits high. All right, Jimmy, you're up. Leonardo DiCaprio. How <laughs> oh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, we did, I was working with an interior designer, and we did the, the model apartment. We did one model apartment, and Tom Felicia's group did the other model apartment. Literally, the doors are side by side. And Tom Felicia's apartment, I actually ended up meeting Tom Felicia and helping him set up that apartment, too. But I was really just doing whatever he needed. But... Uh, my my interior designer helped. I helped my interior designer who would hire me. We built this one model, and when Leo and his mom decided to buy an apartment in this building, they looked at the models and they picked the model that I did with, with with my friend, and so they picked us to do his interior design of his apartment. And uh, the first day I went in to meet with him, I was holding a camera literally just to photograph the apartment. And I remember he kept he kept looking at the camera out of the side of his eye. He thought I was going to be like, let's do a selfie. And I never did. I mean, I had no intention to do it. But he was a regular guy, just super cool. He shook my hand and 
me, his mother was involved in the apartment and we went around with what he wanted to do and we talked about different stuff. And uh, he was he was a very charming, very nice guy. And I ended up working the whole summer there. We, a bunch, we did a bunch of different things in the apartment. We built the roof deck, built his room out, built his mother's room out, built some of the work in the kitchen. And yeah, so the, the whole summer of uh, 2009, I was up there all the time. Occasionally we had special meetings, meet up. Leo wants you to meet at the apartment to discuss some new thing. We built a lot of elements in that apartment. It was a lot of fun. All right, John. Howard Stern. Um, Howard Stern is my idol. When people say the, um, uh, what do you call it, the Mount Rushmore of comedy every now and then on Facebook, I say Richard Pryor and Howard Stern. I think Howard Stern is a living legend. And I look back and I know why he makes fun of everything and everybody. And that's what I like about him. That's his style. When Howard Stern would make fun of Don Imus, it was the greatest thing ever. Um, Howard Stern is my idol. And he brought, I was headlining Caroline's and Baba Bowie said you could come in, but you have to talk about losing a pension. And the sitcom you did turned into the lowest rated sitcom in the history of TV. If you're not willing to talk about that, we won't have you on. I said, no problem. Jimmy was there. Steve Marshall might have been out in the hallway. And I killed it. And I was just so much fun to make Howard Stern laugh, to make Robert De Niro laugh. Um, these are things you can only dream about. Um, and not only did I make Howard Stern laugh, he said, hey, you know what? There's six girls that want to be in Playboy in the next segment. Would you want to be a judge? I said, dude, you, I just died and went to heaven. Are you nuts? I said, I saw one of them outside. It looks like she joined, you know, SAG before it was firm. <laughs> That's a Jeffrey Ross joke, which I called him and apologized after the show. And Stern, uh, Stern kept me to, to, to judge the girls and, uh, you know, that's where you really get your zingers in. You know, short, sweet, you know, three syllables and Stern's banging on the counter. I love Howard Stern. I love everything about him. Jay Leno. I did The Tonight Show as a panel guest, not as a stand-up comedian. And sometimes they say these guys won't come and meet you. They want to keep it fresh. And Jay came back in the um, green room and said, all right, you know, if we go off the script, you know, okay, you're good. I said, yeah, great. I said, you know, I'm just so happy to be here. And it's a funny story that you would never think of. I brought, they wanted to show a picture of me as a cop. And you know how everything's overproduced and too many people involved. So I brought in a photo album of me as a cop. And they were like, all right, John's on, John's on, one, four minutes, John's on, John, the rest of four minutes, you ready? Four minutes, four minutes, the show's already up and running, Jay, let's do my We're going to show a picture, we're going to show a picture, show a picture, picture, we're going to show a picture, we're going to show a picture, bring the picture in, it looks goofy, it's goofy, goofy's good, I said, no, goofy's not good. You know how they'll always pick the worst, you know what I mean? Yeah. I said, Goofy's no. Bring it in. Picture flying in. Picture flying. John, one minute. John DeResta, one minute. One minute. Picture. They show me the picture. I go, that's not even fucking me. That's Mike Pioli. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a picture of a transit cop that wasn't me. And they said, no picture. No picture. Okay. Uh, I went out. I had the best time of my life. I, from the, you know, he sets you up. I sat down and he said, uh, so he, like, he, six weeks ago, were you really a New York City cop? So six weeks ago? I said, look at me. <laughs> cop hair, no neck, man boobs. I got a fupa. And that was it. I was off to the What's races. A fupa? I'm fat up a pussy area. <laughs> and I'm a man. I got a vajummy, bruh. And I was 250, 245, 250. Now I'm 200. I had more chins than a Chinese phone book. And I had asked the wardrobe person on my sitcom to get me a cool hip suit. And I thought for some reason I was going to look like George Clooney. Like I just asked her to get it. You look like Rosie Greer. I look like Rosie monster. Greer. I just needed a two-headed monster. A, I look like a UPS Brown. 
it was a UPS suit with the chest was 54 and my waist was probably 44 and a half and white socks. And I killed it on The Tonight Show. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, to, to quote Sue Costello, you should have had 50 jabs the next day. I mean, it, it seemed like nothing ever really. Oh, you know what came from it? Dean Valentine, who we were three episodes into the show, Doresta, put that ep- had a meeting at UPN the next day, popped it in, showed it. When it ended, he said, that's the fucking guy I hired. You're writing Charles in Charge with rubber guns. You know, honey, I'm home. He said, that's the guy I hired, and that's the guy I'm not getting. And that was one of the problems with the sitcom. Jay Leno, oh, and I've seen him since, you know, oh, we did a gig uh, about six months later, and he was supposed to just introduce me at the Beverly Hills Cop fundraiser, and he did 20 minutes and killed, and did a bunch of the same jokes that I was gonna do, just parallel thinking. You know, New York City cops carry pepper spray. Beverly Hills cops carry pepper mill. Um, and he killed, man. He made it tough for me. And I hadn't done stand-up in six weeks. And my whole act was about being a broke cop. Now I'm in front of a thousand Beverly Hills residents. I live in a million dollar home I rent on Mulholland. I got a sitcom, I got two brand new cars, and I hadn't done a set in six weeks. You know, the last set was at Pips, how I'm a broke cop. Did you bomb? I didn't bomb, but I, I had a tuxedo on which made me very uncomfortable. And right before I went up, Carol Leifer went, I'm Carol Leifer, I can't wait to see a set. And I was like, I'm inside my head now. Or there's another comedian here to see me. <laughs> and all I thought it was a cop function. It was for the residents of Beverly Hills to give money. So by the time I got up, all 500 husbands had their coats over their arm because they want to get to the valet first sitting like this on the edge of their seat. They had zero interest in me. They just saw Jay Leno for 20 minutes. Now you're gonna see some fat dick from Long Island? <laughs> Scene. Jimmy, you're up. <laughs> Scene. <laughs> YouTube community. Oh, YouTube community. After we left a lot of the story out, but John and I did a show called Dirty Money for Discovery Channel, which came and went too quickly. It was such a great show. The The, the production team was good. We had a lot of fun. And uh, right after that show, uh, it was apparent it wasn't getting picked up anymore. I started doing YouTube. I basically said, I'm going to kind of show TV business with what they're missing by not nurturing what John and I had to offer. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today.
I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So you started your own YouTube channel, what year? Uh, 2011. 2011, you have nobody. Nobody, you have not one. I had, I, I had started the YouTube channel just so that I could park my name. I know, but you have no 500 viewers. subscribers. How do you start with 500 subscribers? You have because, to start the channel. Oh, well, I started it in 2006 is when I started it. I just parked my name. Oh, so people just subscribe with it. But in 2011, you started it. I said, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this and, and turn it into something. Tell our audience when you realized something's happening here. I started doing, uh, I, I realized I was going to try and do a YouTube movie every week. So I knew if I had to do a lot of movies. What I kind would, of movie and how Me long? building stuff. Five to ten minutes long. So each thing was you building a different thing. Five to ten minutes. And the way you used to do this great video where you used to do time-lapse photography when you make yeah. something. Actually, the different. very first YouTube video I did, I did when we were working together on Trash to Cash. I tried to sell that concept of me doing things really quickly, building things quickly. And nobody ever bid on it. So now here it is this many years later, 2011. It's almost ten years later. I started putting up those videos on YouTube uh, just to try and develop a portfolio and to see if it bled anywhere. I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere. I didn't know. And uh, about six months into me really nurturing my YouTube channel in 2011, I got hired by Make Magazine to do videos for them. They had, I had maybe five or 800 subscribers at the time. They had a quarter of a million. So their audience started seeing me on their channel. So I was basically giving them uh, like private label videos, but completely up to me. They didn't even want to see them until they were posted. They had no artistic direction. They basically said, we want you. Do but when you did want. you notice your channel as had a as, huge jump? As soon as I started posting videos on their channel. Because I had, at that point, I had probably, by the time they hired me, I had about 30 videos. So they you, bought 10 of them when, to post. When you post on their channel, it's going to their channel, though. It's not going to you. No, but I, I would do two for me, one for them. Two for me, one for them. Got it. So I was... Kind of like we're doing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I just started, people started recognizing me. So they realized, oh... You did this for this channel, but you have 17 other videos that we would never see unless we go to your channel. So I just started developing an audience with them. And then so now it's eight years later. How many subscribers one, do you have? Um, one, 1.5 million and counting. Incredible. There's been some ebbs and flows, you know, sometimes you got to really nurture it. Having a YouTube channel, you got to constantly nurture it. And if you go away from it too long, you know, your subscribers start to dip a little bit. You got to constantly keep feeding it, and it's great practice for the entertainment business. Incredible, and it's and it's all mine. It's just me. So YouTube has changed my world in the way that I've made so many friends through YouTube because it's so many people that are like-minded. It's like I meet people through the comment section, and then when I meet them, we're just immediately friends. It's amazing because. It, the opposite of that is a TV business where it's a very competitive and you meet people like if another show takes your time slot, you hate them. Like even though you never meet them and you never will meet them, they become the enemy. That's been our experience with me and John. But in the YouTube community, people do things just like I'm doing. And it's like, oh, wow, dude, look what you're doing. It's just there's something about it that is just uplifting and everybody uplifts everybody and everybody. There's no competition. My buddy Bobby Duke's got close to three million fans and everything we do is 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 just like uplifts everybody there's no competition is basically what i'm saying 
So it's really amazing. What do you do with the things you make? Uh, I Sometimes I sell them on eBay, but for the most part, I've collected and kept mostly everything I made. It's They're all just scattered around my big shop. I got a 5,000 square foot workshop, so they're all just scattered around my shop, hanging on the walls. When I get fan visits, they, they geek out on the stuff. It's just hanging all around like a... Like at a Friday's, it's all just hanging on the walls. Got it. All right, John. Lay it on me, brah. Dane Cook. Um, it's funny. I didn't know Dane Cook at all for some reason. I, I, I feel like I was out of the loop till you and I hooked up. You were my manager, and I got introduced to Dane Cook and uh, found him wildly funny. And um, you guys were putting together a movie called Eight Guys, or Dane Cook was. Um, and uh, with eight comedians and someone dropped out. A short comedy film. A short comedy film and somebody by the name of Dave, I think you guys said, oh, Dave can't make it, John DeResta can. And um, we, I guess we worked about five days on it and uh, it was good, I had fun with it. I like Dane Cook and I like now that he's on like a bit of a comeback, I've been following him on the, um, you know, on the uh, podcasts. And I find it interesting. Again, I had the tiniest, tiniest, you know, he was the most famous guy on earth for X amount of years. I had 5% of that. You know what I mean? So to, to see what, what he went through, um, and now in hindsight, um, he said, you know, all I wanted to do was be funny, you know what I mean? And make people laugh and give them enjoyment. And the haters that must have come out of the woodwork, he's, you know what I'm saying? Like someone just wrote something nasty about me on uh Facebook did. They didn't use my name. The, the guy had a bad set. He had to go on after me. And he said a couple derogatory. Th one guy, one misfit comedian was like, well, I had to follow a guy that, you know, had a medallion. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it hurt my feelings. You know what I mean? I can imagine, you know, just, uh, you know, tons of people. Like, I almost feel for the guy. Yeah, nothing but good memories that, that, that five days. Louis C.K. Oh, okay. Louis C.K. Uh, Jimmy probably doesn't remember this. On the I, I won New York's Funniest Cop. And in the first runner-up, the first, what would you call it, round? Yeah, there was, was two, two rounds. rounds. Two rounds, yeah. And the first round, it, it was me and, uh, and Joe Badalamente moved on. Right. And while they were tallying the votes, they brought up a comedian. This is Stand Up New York. I remember. Spring of 93, it was Louis C.K. And it was boom, boom, boom. And I remember saying, you know, I'm worried about being picked to go on to the next round, yet I'm saying to myself, how can a guy be so funny? I mean, boom, remember bad thing? You know what I mean? The window, the door, the front, the bad thing. And he said he had so many parking tickets, a bad uh, license. When he got pulled over, he would just get in the cop's car before <laughs> there was any dialogue. But it was boom, boom, boom. And, and the guy was so funny. And then about 10 or 12 years later, he's doing the first Louis show. Um, the one that no one really saw. The HBO The version. HBO one, and I auditioned to be the crazy friend. And the Rick Shapiro role? Um, no, the other one, there was like a white guy with like a, a weird face. He looked a little Down syndrome-ish. Jim chubby. Norton. No, oh, the, no, the chubby friend. The, the chubby friend. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, the, like the Jackie Gleason looking guy. Mm -hmm. All right, you remember it. Yeah. So I couldn't wait to, to make a connection. You know what I mean? I'm going to go in, I'm going to, you know, it's like a Animal House. Remember when they meet the band? They, they're going to love us. Yeah. You know what I mean? Otis. Otis. He loves us. My man. Yeah, my man. <laughs> so I walk in and uh, I say, hey, you know, Louie's right. I say, hey, before we start, you know what I mean? I said, uh, New York's funniest cop. You know, there's the runoff. Joe Bottolamente, my brother Jimmy was there. Then they tally the votes. And you came up and, and I said, boy, you just knocked it out of the park. And he goes, uh, can you just stand on the X and do your lines? Oh, Jesus Christ. 
a year later, I auditioned for Mike Royce for a sitcom. Mike Royce is a comedian Mike and a writer. Royce, comedian, writer, wrote on Raymond, executive producer Raymond, also created Men of a Certain Age with a Romana. So, Jimmy, when I won New York's Funniest Cop two months later, it was between me and Joe Badalamenti, and Mike Royce hosted, and he reads the paper, and he goes, the winner, the first time ever, it was a big deal, New York's Funniest Cop is Joe DiResta. And I go, why the fuck is my dad New York's Funniest Cop? <laughs> he read both of our names, and we're waiting to see, and he turns the paper over and goes, oh, transit, John DiResta. So now I'm going to audition for Mike Royce. And I'm gonna make the connection. You made me, you made a funny Joe DeResta, and it was transit, and you remember? <laughs> and he goes, Can you stand on the X and do your lines? <laughs> That's a true story. All right. 9 11. 9 11. This I is was... for both of you. 9 11, I was in my uh, apartment. 9 11, uh, let's see, the morning of 9 11, the, the night before we had worked late getting ready for a big uh, toy meeting. The morning of 9 11 was a big toy uh, convention that was going to take place in New York. So, me and, and Heather, who you met, my ex, we worked late that night getting the showroom set up. Were you living in New York City? I was living in the Lower East Side on Second Street in, in, in an apartment. I still have an apartment in Lower East Side, but I was in the, a different apartment at the time. And uh, Kathleen, our sister, had stayed at the house. And I went into the shower at 9 in the morning, about quarter to 9. And Kathleen bangs on the door to the bathroom and she said, Howard Stern just said an airplane flew into, because Howard Stern was playing in the apartment. Uh, into the building, into the World Trade Center. How far are you from there? Um, I was on Second Street and Avenue B. So, I mean, as the crow flies, probably a mile. Okay. And uh, so I get out of the bathroom in a towel. I'm like, it must have been an accident. It must have been a small plane. That And so I put my towel on and we, we flip my TV on in my bedroom. And I'm standing there in a towel and Heather and my sister. And we're watching the, the building burning. And while we're watching the building burning, the second airplane flies into the other building. I'm getting the chills. And we hear the boom out of my bedroom window. So we watch it, and it's like a three-second delay. So we see it happen, and we hear the boom out of the window. Ooh. And I immediately started to cry. Just tears came out of my eyes. Like I, what, I didn't feel the emotion as much as it just like happened physically. And then Heather looked at me, and she started crying. She's like, if you're crying, shit's going crazy. What, why are you crying? Because I'm supposed to be in control. That's how Heather always looked at me as one in control. And so I, we got our stuff together. We got dressed and we ran to the street to go see what was going on in the street. And so by the time I, I, we got out of the building, it was me and Kathleen decided to stay in the store. Because at the time we owned the store in the, in the building. We rented the store. So she stayed at the store and me and Heather went to go to work. We had to go to this meeting, which we didn't know whether it was on or not. By the time we walked to Avenue A, as we rounded the corner, you hear crowds going, oh. as we rounded the corner, there was just a column of smoke where the tower was. The first tower had fallen just as we rounded the corner. And we're looking at a column of black smoke, which was like in place of where the building was. And within minutes, that smoke had just dissipated. So we missed that. Then we walked down Houston Street to to uh, Mercer, uh, Mercer Street, I think. Houston and Mercer, is that the name of that street in Soho? And we're standing on uh, West, we're standing on 4th Street and Mercer, right in front of the, the bottom line. Remember that? Is that the name of that place? No, the Bitter End. Standing in front of the Bitter End, looking down Mercer Street, 
And as we're looking up, I'm, I'm looking through my camera. This is a funny moment. So I'm looking through my, because now I had a video camera and I'm filming. And I'm looking at the building that's still burning, that's still standing. And a guy taps me on the shoulder and I turn to him and he goes, is that digital? Is that a digital camera? And with that, I hit the stop button to go, oh, no, no, it's, it's well, it's a, it's a t it, and the crowd screams and I hit play again and I look up and the building just pancakes down. And I'm probably, you know, at that point, we're like 15 blocks. Could you feel it? The, I, I could say I could feel it because just, just the energy in the city was just yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And like, again, it's just like we couldn't believe what was going on. And then from there, we walked through Washington Square Park through the arch. Now we're right at the end of Fifth Avenue. And there's everyone just stopped. And there's a police car open with the with 1010 winds on and it's blasting. So everybody's crowded around the car to hear the news. And the and the guy at 1010 wins, the guy goes, goes, nobody knows what's going on. We like it was just bizarre. And so that's 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 my memory of like the first hour of 9-11. And then we stood at the the meeting got called off. We stood on the roof of our building on 23rd Street and Fifth Avenue, just looking downtown at the smoke for the rest of the day, just like not knowing what was going on. I want you to tell the audience 24 hours before you decided to quit the police force. <laughs> I want to know that 24 hours and how you did it and what happened and how it transpired and what the discussions were in your mind. Um, once they ordered the pilot, I knew that I was going to probably leave the job. Um, in hindsight, it was a quick, in other words, I should have waited till they picked up the series. They only ordered a pilot and that was $75,000 fee. So I knew I was just gonna make another, that's a year's pay as a cop. So um, when they ordered the pilot, uh, let's say it was maybe uh, April of 98, I said, you know what, I'm gonna leave the job. I'm gonna, uh, I think I can make a living. The fact that someone ordered a pilot around me and I had this, this sitcom money, uh, hanging out there. Um, I knew I was going to leave the job and I had two weeks vacation. So on March 28th was my last official day, but the two weeks before, right around March 11th, I went in for a, um, a nine at night to six in the morning and the sergeant took and everybody knew I was leaving and uh, the sergeant took me out on patrol, no uniform, just for about an hour. We literally went for at 930. We got in a police car in plain clothes, went to a diner. I paid, I had the TV money. Uh, he took me back to the station and from about 11 to six in the morning, I hung out. And then I kind of shook everyone's hand. Everyone said, good luck. Everyone was nice. And then I had two weeks vacation. So I was a cop for two weeks on, I just told Jimmy this story the other day on uh, March 28th, I went to one police plaza and handed in my gun at one desk, my shield at another, and another guy. And, and every place I stopped at was a overweight civil service woman that looked like they might've worked at DMV and said, I read about you in the newspaper. You can't quit. That business is a motherfucker. And it went from one to the literally like, you know, what do you do when you got 12 years on the job? You know, what are you doing? You can be funny here in New York. Finally get down to the, where you hand in your guns. And it was through a crazy wiry with like a, you know what I mean? It looked something like from like an old seventies movie, like a wire cage with an aperture. 
And I, and I had two handguns opened up like this in my fingers with no bullets in them. And I said to the guy, hey, I got a hand in these two weapons. And he goes, let me see your shield and ID from behind the, you know, the, the cage. I said, I don't have one. He goes, so you're telling me you got two handguns, you can't prove you're a New York City cop. I said, no, I can't. He just walked away. He didn't even say anything. He just walked away. And with that, the little fat white cop comes waddling by. It's a friend of mine, John Criscolo, who was arrested for having a casino in his garage. <laughs> he had one arm bandits in his garage and he was arrested. He was in the rubber gun squad and he comes walking past and he goes, holy shit, the rest, uh, are you really going to quit? I said, I am. And with that, a Hawaiian cop walked. These guys are all in the rubber gun squad. You know, you know, they're not even allowed to own any gun. They're all crazy. Uh, I never saw a Hawaiian New York City cop walks up behind the cage and goes, you're the transit cop. You ride, we hide. You piss in the corner. $10 co-pays. I said, dude, how do you know? He goes, I saw you three weeks ago. You were so, f like, it was a nice going away. Like, you know, hey, Duresta, hey, good for you. You don't need this shit. I'm a civilian for three minutes. I walk out in the sun, March 28th, 1998. There's a $55 ticket on my windshield <laughs> for parking in a red zone one inch. So I, I didn't even get out. I turned the wipers on like good white trash. I pluck it. I lit it on fire and lit my first marijuana cigarette in 12 years with that ticket. And I never paid it to this day. Thank you. Awesome. All right, everybody, both of you, your proudest moment in show business. Oh. You first, Jimmy. Oh. Wow. I listen to you ask people this question all the time, and I never thought about what that would be for me because I never knew you would ask me. I guess, uh, I guess. Do you remember when we watched, uh, there was like a watch party for, there was a watch party for Hammered. I remember something about it. Yeah, I guess that. Where was, was it? It was, it was it connected to Oh, you want to know something? Yeah, it was like in a nightclub and everyone really liked it. And the guys who were the head of City Lights Media, like didn't even, never looked at the show, didn't care they less. They were there watching. They were there and they leaned to someone and said, we got a hot one. Yeah. And yeah. Peter Wren got up and walked out because nobody gave him credit. Remember he said he had a bad tooth. <laughs> he shit his pants. He had like three different excuses. Remember the next day we go, where did you go? And it was like he almost couldn't like stand seeing us. I don't know. It was weird. I don't so, think they gave him his props. So, I do remember that. <laughs> so that might have been, I don't know, just being on TV, I guess, not realizing like that this was even going to be a choice for me. It was, I guess that might be it. I don't know. I never really thought about the answer. Awesome. John? I've thought about it. And it's three things. Number one, to be on Howard Stern, he was an absolute idol to mine. To be on Howard Stern and to get him laughing and to know that if, like, you know, if, if he remembered me, to know that if Howard Stern saw me again, instant smile. In other words, no, if Howard to, Stern saw you again, he would say, could you just stand on the X? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, I have three of them. To just kill on Howard Stern just because he meant so much to me growing up. He's the same sense of humor. He's a Long Island. He's a flid. Fucking Long Island douchebag. Are you reaching for a weapon? Um, <laughs> that, being on The Tonight Show, again, I know we spoke of it, but to have dreams that literally while you're sleeping, to dream that you're on The Tonight Show, making people laugh, and then to do it. Um, and this is how old I am. When I say I was on The Tonight Show, people go, with Johnny? <laughs> That's a true story. And then 
uh, obviously not just working with Robert De Niro, but him doing inside jokes. He would come to the set real late, like he's an hour late. We hold us all up and he'd slide up and I'd be the first person. He would just go, I got stuck on a subway. And I'm like, he takes the subway? And he's such a good fucking actor that I believed he was on the subway. You know what I mean? How, him doing inside jokes with me. And um, I gave him a joke to do right before a take. He did the joke. Say hello to Uncle Tony for me. And as soon as I rounded the corner, he goes, his Uncle Tony was the biggest fucking asshole I ever met. And I turned the corner back. I go, what? He goes, good cop. Good cop. <laughs> like I caught and we did this little improv that wasn't supposed to be cut, applause break into like a huge laugh and an applause break. And as it died, Robert De Niro goes, that's a John DeResta joke. Right there, that's a John DeResta joke. So, and that night to get drunk with him, uh, you know, I keep notes on all this stuff and I would be very interested to see what I wrote the night I got drunk with Robert De Niro. In other words, uh, you know what I mean? Like um, if I wrote anything at all, I remember it was a Waldorf Astoria and I remember laying in bed, I was boxed. I was lunch boxed. I mean, I was drunk. To this day, if I smell Patron, it smells like Robert De Niro and fun. Um, as compared to old Milwaukee and my Uncle Kenny <laughs> and the smoke, you know, the fire, the embers. Um, hold on. I laid in bed in the Waldorf Astoria and I, I the same tears of joy I cried that night on set 33 that I said this could work. I cried. I was in the Waldorf Astoria. I had his Mercedes Benz that he didn't want to park. So for the month, I just parked it at the Waldorf Astoria. I didn't know it was 90 bucks a night. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I was driving a Mercedes. I was in a movie with De Niro and I had gotten drunk with him that night. And uh, I laid in bed and, and, and cried tears of joy. I mean, but who knew the tears would be of sadness over the next X amount of years? That's a different episode. <laughs> Your biggest disappointment in show business, oh, Jimmy, geez. how you used it to fuel yourself to the that next That answer level. is easy. That is uh, when we did Dirty Money, which was a very fun show. We had a great time on that show and everybody involved said this is going to be a hit. And then the executives at Discovery all got switched up. And so our show basically got swept out with the old cast of executives uh the show aired we immediately started getting emails and oh this is going to be great when season two there was never any intention of season two even though the ratings were good and then i turned into going to youtube and my life changed a thousand times better john uh, i'm gonna say a few of them the one man <laughs> no the one man show and the way it fizzled out uh with the lawsuit i can't even look at the poster the sitcom was so mishandled and unfunny, it's a bad memory. The sit this is crazy. The sitcom is a bad memory. I know I should be proud of these things, and I am, but the sitcom was just not funny, and it didn't capture me, and I didn't like the way I just was railroaded into this you know, character. Uh, and then all three of our fix-it shows ended in what, and you taught me this, Barry Katz, you taught me that this is just the way it goes, you know what I mean? You, there's ups and downs, but how all these things could have been and should have been, especially Dirty Money. We were in the top 25 of cable shows every week without any advertising, and that's with wrestling, with sports, Dirty Money, Discovery, Tuesday nights at 1030, and the way it just went away. Um, those were all kind of sad moments, and uh, I've yet to turn it around and use it. <laughs> but I'm in the, uh, I want to come back. When you think about the lull, because you've always had lulls, yeah, and they've always come back. 
You've always gotten something. Right. It's been like every three or four years I've been gotten very lucky. Now, as we sit here today, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist about the future? Um, I, I will tell you this, from being a comedian and being a cop and being dicked around so much in show business, that uh, cynicism waves over me like heroin high. I really am a cynical person. Um, however, I do know that uh, Jimmy's a good example of coming back. I know I've come back a few times. I know for, um, you know, my stand-up act is, you know, it's not like it's been seen a thousand times. Um, like, in other words, I, I know that the stand-up act is effective. I know I'm... I know I could host a reality show. I know I could act in a movie and I know I could probably do another one man show. So I have to say, yes, George Collins said in an interview I saw the other night, you have to believe in something. So I believe that um, I believe that there's something out there for me. I don't know what it is. And uh, August 1st, I get my first pension check from the Screen Actors Guild, which who knew you could even earn a pension. In other words, as much as I complain, to get a letter in the mail 10 years ago that says when you turn 55, you receive a pension. You know, that's like winning a little bit of a lottery. You know what I mean? What advice do you have for the young person who's growing up in a crazy area of wherever it is with a family that might not be getting along, and, but has a dollar and a dream and a vision of how to get to the next level and figures it out some way, navigating through the craziness of their life to get to a point where you guys are? If it's the entertainment business, I think you have to create your own content. Even if you're an actor and you want to be an actor, you have to create your own content. That'll help you understand what people are looking for. It'll help you understand the process. You have to create your own content. You can't just sit around waiting for a script to come along and you act in it. You got to write the script. You got to make the scenario. You got to learn how to use a camera. I don't think it's that way anymore where you just get chosen. It does happen, of course, but you really have to create your opportunities with a camera, with YouTube, with writing with friends you got to make got to make content John uh, my advice is that it can happen it's happened to me and it's and I've gotten very 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 lucky and it happened to me really quick from the day I said I wanted to be a comedian five years and nine months I had a sitcom deal worth a lot of money so it can happen but here's the number one piece of advice this is for people that are already up and doing it you have to keep the hustle on you cannot take you I took my foot off the gas a few times and it's funny I would think that I would learn my lesson you have to hustle and you have to keep hustling and even you know champions hustle even harder to be like ufc fighters hustle even harder once they're a champion it doesn't get easy it doesn't get easy um or but you have to hustle and i had one example oh this is the stupidest little thing john travolta already already had a bit of a movie star career and only got on to welcome back cotter took the role as barbarino to pay for his pr person for the movies I never thought like that. You know what I mean? I thought if you showed up on time and you're a good guy, that you would progress in Hollywood. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. In other words, he took a TV role just to pay for a PR to get more famous. Right. Like, I never thought that way. I just thought if you showed up on, you know, you, Barry Katz told me uh, years ago, I, I said, you know what? I show up on time. I'm funny. And, you know, you got to put asses in the seats. You know what I mean? You got to put asses in the seats. And how do you do that? You just got to keep hustling. The hustle, and to quote Tony Soprano, the hustle never ends. Awesome, you guys. Jimmy <laughs> DeResta, John DeResta, thank you so much. This has Thanks, been man. amazing. Yeah, no, thank you. 
Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on uh, Vegas Magic Fan, October 24th, 2016. Heading reads, great podcast, exclamation point, twice, five stars. And the comment reads, I love the interview with my old friend Milt Larson of the Magic Castle. I've known Milt for 35 years, and I learned a thing or two about him from Barry Katz's interview. Thanks. All right, Vegas Magic Fan, you are a winner. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And here's a preview of the next very special episode. Jerry Greenberg. Patience. Patience, patience, patience. You will make it if you really got it. Trust me. I mean, this uh, girl called her, H-E-R. I just saw her for the first time at Clive's party. I, I almost fell off my chair. I couldn't believe it. She started when she was 14. Patience and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune is.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.